This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. Whenever Denise was going to beat me up, Shirley Pelma would magically appear, the teacher. So she decides to take me to the me and a couple of girlfriends. She just had to ask my mother, and she took me to see West Side Story. And uh, she buys me a poster, the poster of, uh, of them kissing, or on the fire escape. And I got home and I remember my mother said, so how was the movie? <laughs> it was like, I am so unhappy, and it's my unhappiness and I'm not gonna share it with you because this is my beautiful, full of feeling. And I crushed that poster to me and lay down in bed with it and cried into the <laughs> crumpled up poster. <laughs> I, I made it a part of me and I felt empowered. My misery made me strong because I, I was part of the, the human condition. Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked, a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there. Before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke and this is Your Hometown. A lot of us found our way to Sesame Street. It mattered most to me back in the early 1980s. I was a kid, going to a babysitter's house each weekday morning because my mom had to go back to work full time. I counted on that hour of TV as an escape from my homesickness, even though really, I was just a few blocks from my home. The characters on that show, the Muppets and the humans alike, really did make the air feel sweeter somehow. My guest was one of them, Sonia Manzano. You know her. She was Maria for like more than 40 years in the show. When she was young, she used to hang out at Mr. Hooper's store. Then she was hired at the Fix-It shop. And she ended up marrying Luis, and they had a daughter. Now it turns out, Sesame Street wasn't that far from her own hometown. Both are neighborhoods in New York City. Sesame Street has filmed in Manhattan and Queens. It's a fictional place that evokes city life, from the stoop to the courtyard to the subway and apartments above stores. Sony, though, she grew up in the very real place of the South Bronx, most vividly on Third Avenue near Katona Park. All of this made me curious. How different was Sony's New York from the one she helped to create as Maria? How has she drawn on her childhood to teach us things? It's something she's still doing with her new show called Alma's Way. On our TVs, Sonia gave us something we needed, a feeling of love and safety, empathy and imagination. Where did she find these things when she was a kid? The title of her memoir is Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. Chaos? That interested me. We don't see a lot of chaos on Sesame Street. We're going to find out here where that came from. And sitting down to record this interview at the Museum of the City of New York, Sonia knocked me out with her storytelling, which comes from the most generous of places, to teach children from her own life. The funny, the scary, the raw. Now, this is a two-part episode. In the first part, Sonia takes us from the world of Sesame Street, actually her audition for the show, to her beginnings in the South Bronx. And in part two, she explains how she got from the Bronx to Sesame Street and lived a second childhood as an adult with experiences to share. So come and play and sweep the clouds away by listening to one of the truest teachers you'll ever find in New York or any hometown. I found it interesting that when you uh, auditioned for Sesame Street, uh, the executive producer of the show, John Stone, mm -hmm. asked you to tell him a scary story <laughs> and to tell it to him as if he were a kid. It was unexpected. 
and your mind went back to the place where you grew up, Third Avenue in the Bronx, and you told a story. And I wanted to ask you how it riffed on an original dream or experience that you had as a little girl. Right, exactly. Boy, you're really jarring my memory at this moment. But I watched a lot of television as a kid, and this was before people were very interested or concerned and, and didn't realize the impact that, that some violent cartoons might have on children. So this was a cartoon that had to do with World War II and there was a periscope that came out of the submarine in the cartoon with a big eye on it. And it was, you know, bear down on the enemy. So I then had a dream or an experience where this periscope eyeball was chasing me around the Third Avenue apartment we lived in. And I was, uh, I remember being very scared at that moment. So when John asked me to tell a story, that's the story I remembered. What was it about that eye that scared you? Uh, it had very long, uh, like snuffleupagus eyelashes, you know, very mm -hmm. wet. And it was just an eye at the end of the periscope. It didn't have a, a face to go with it. So it was very ominous. <laughs> <laughs> and that feeling of being watched, is that something that you can remember feeling as a kid? No, I, like no I never did. The only, uh, I guess the only connection to watching is what, that I watch so much television with nothing else to do. I formed my, my view of life from the window to the television. That's where reality existed. And at that time, the Third Avenue elevated train was up. You know, I'd look out the window and there was all this activity going out. And then I'd connect those images and feelings and stories with what I was watching on television. And I'd reconcile some of that and then go back to the window. And that train, was it a... Was it a comforting sound at times? Was it an annoying sound? I, I loved it. I still love the subway. I love when it goes underground. I love when it comes up. I love that my sister said to me, we're going to take the subway and we're going to go to this place called Orchard Street and we're going to buy pickles from a barrel. And I said, no. <laughs> she said, yes and we're gonna get knishes. What's a knish? It's a, like a big square potato that's fried and you can get them with mustard inside. I went, no! <laughs> it was like, I always compared the subway to, to uh, in front of my house, like a river. It was always flowing and it took mm. you places and people came and you got on and then you got off and you know, you sat in those straw seats and you got down to a different world. It, within a day. I loved it and I would wait for my mother to come home from work and she'd get off the train and she'd wait for me and we'd, she'd wave to me and then I'd watch her walk down to the end of the station and down the stairs and past the shoeshine boys. Oh, I wanted to be a shoeshine boy so badly. Why, why did you want to be a shoeshine boy? Because they had power. Boys had power. Girls had to stay indoors. Hmm. And the, but the boys could be out making money. <laughs> but that, you know, I actually tried, you know, tried it with my parents and they didn't go for it. They wanted me to be in. I was a girl, stay indoors, protected, boys had power. And what about your little brothers, your two little brothers? They, were, they, they could go out more. Oh, so it really was a girl-boy thing. Oh, yeah. And I remember uh, my friend Marion Mubel, she mm -hmm. lived on Fulton Avenue, right mm -hmm. across from Cortona Park. And there was a rock outcropping. I love the rock outcroppings in the Bronx. And yeah. I, could, I could climb it 
And then I could see kind of Fulton Avenue and Third Avenue. I'd say to myself, you know, actually, Marion Nubel and I live in the same building. Of course we didn't. But in my mind, I would say, well, see, that building is connected to that building, which is connected to that building. And those two buildings are touching. Therefore, you can say that <laughs> yes. we are living in the same connected area. One of the things that jumps out when you're reading your memoir is that you yourself were a set of eyes. What do you see when you think of that little girl in you and, and what she was observing of the world through those windows, those portals? I made sense of the world that way. I put, I put two and two together. I, uh, I would watch the lifestyles of the guy who owned the grocery store downstairs. I, uh, this is Don Joe's Bodega? Don Joe's Bodega, right. Uh, you know, and, uh, and going down there and uh, uh, stealing something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a thief. Uh, uh, what did you steal? I stole a coconut macaroon. See, see, my parents were always arguing about money and how, you know, they never had enough money and money was so tight and money was so tight. My mother gives me five cents to get myself a treat. So I go downstairs and I see that Don Joe is distracted. So I take the macaroon and I take it upstairs and we're eating it. My mother and I are sharing it. And I said, and not only that, mom, I saved us five cents because I stole it because I did what she, well, she said, oh, you know, you're not supposed to do that. You know, we're not that bad off that we have to steal. Uh, uh, the Virgin Mary cries every time kids steal and that's why it rains. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a watchful eye. I know, the, oh gosh, oh, <laughs> so then, you know, she said, you have to go downstairs and you have to apologize and you have to pay for it. And so what did you do? I went downstairs and I didn't have the nerve to apologize, but I may do. I kissed the two cents up to heaven and left it on the counter and ran out. <laughs> that was making my peace. I couldn't face him and go through the whole rigmarole of, uh, uh, of talking. Plus, if I had something to say to the grocer, and he interrupted me. I'd forget what I was supposed to buy. <laughs> right. Now don't forget a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. If you can't remember, I'll write it down for you. That's okay, Mommy. I won't forget. I'll remember. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. What were some of the laws of the universe that you were noticing? And where did you see little Sonia fitting in? Well, first of all, I, the first time I saw the discrepancy was when my father took me to his boss's house in Yonkers. He would work on roofs. He would tar roofs. He would roofs. tar roofs, okay. yeah. And so we went to his boss's house who called my father Chico, and I said, who the heck is Chico? I didn't realize at that time that was a kind of boy, calling him boy. And 
I thought they were so rich. Now this is probably a little, you know, some middle class little house. And, but to me it looked like, like Windsor Castle or something because it had glass doors and a deck and everything like that. But I do remember specifically thinking, how could these two men be in the same world in that they interact with each other mm -hmm. every day? Or, you know, he calls my father, my father has to call him, and, and we live so differently. I, I just was stunned. Any kid's parents, you, they loom large. And then when you see them interacting in the world, you're su they can surprise you. Right. I remember a cop stopping us for traffic, and I was thinking, Oh boy, this cop is gonna get it now. My father's gonna really give it to him. And I saw my father, you know, get smaller in his seat, and and you know, speak broken English with it, with fear. So it was all of a sudden that was different. And then I had this terrible teacher, Mrs. Whitman, who said uh, she was awful. She hated us, and she said that um, that we were poor. She told the class that we were all poor. And I thought we were middle class, because to me, poor was like Calcutta, like, you know, kids sleeping in the street and like that, and no, not having a place to, a roof over and your a boat, head. Right, and yeah. not, you know, meals a day. Mm -hmm. We ate every day. <clears throat> and, I, and I said, so I went home and I said to my mother, are we poor? My sister said, we're poor. My mother said, we're doing all right, but I could see how hurt she was. By that question. Yeah, and it's judgment that's passed yeah. swiftly in a word. Yeah. Poor. Poor. And the nuances that you as a kid were trying to figure out. Right. You know, where, where are you in this pyramid? And you're getting the sense you're at the bottom. And I remember one time my mother came home from work. She worked in a factory. She was a, a garment industry. Ga seems yeah, yeah, but her, she worked on Tremont Avenue. Mm -hmm. And uh, she came home and she was. She was so angry, she was so flustered, and she was, and we're going like, what, what, what? And she said, my boss, he just didn't treat me, and she couldn't find the word. And then she said, like a person. That told me a lot. That told me how she felt about herself. Yeah, that she saw herself as that someone with worth. she saw herself as somebody who's of worth. Yeah, you're, you're, you're picking up on these things. As you say, looking out that window, looking how the world works, who's got power, the, the shoeshine boys, the bodega owner, or the pharmacist you describe in the book who offers you a free box of crayons. Well, my mother finally, uh, going to school in September was great because you got notebooks and you, you, know, you got your yep. composition notebook and you got pencils and a bookcase and all this kind of fun stuff. And so she, I, I couldn't wait. And I said, please let me go down there and get this stuff. I, I can't bear, I can't wait another minute. And she said, oh, okay, I'll let you. So I go downstairs and I start, look, I buy what I'm going to buy, but I can't help looking at those big boxes of Crayolas that had all the exotic colors. And I'm caressing the box and the pharmacist comes out from behind the counter and he starts talking to me and and uh, offering me the, the box and asking me if I'd like it. Well, of course I'd like it. And slowly he starts to grope my breasts as, as, as I'm wondering about the box. I'm so confused. I'm thinking, I don't know what's going on. I want the crayons. He's being very nice, except for this uncomfortableness. And then all of a sudden, this huge cop with a nightstick comes to the door and bangs on the door jam and he says, hey! Well, the pharmacist looked like he had condensed into a little rat and he just scurried behind the counter so fast, so fast. I thought he was gonna fly over the counter. And he, you know, his legs, uh, talk about putting your tail between your legs. He put yeah. his whole body between his legs and went back behind the counter. And that's when I knew, oh, what this guy is doing is totally, totally wrong. Because I saw the reaction, his reaction and the cop's anger. And then, uh, you know, it was like, I just went, I grabbed my stuff and went upstairs. I didn't say anything to my mother 
because I thought if I tell her, she's gonna say, I told you, you shouldn't go out by yourself and now you're not gonna go. Let's turn that gaze inside into the interior world of your home. What's the visual and emotional map of that space for you? I thought the position of women, uh, you know, women would get married and then a, a year later they'd say, did he turn out good? Like, did he, like, it was a crapshoot. Yeah. And the woman had no, uh, no, no choice. So it seemed that you were, you were either this good woman who took a chance, or you were a woman of ill repute. The word was called, Lisieron el daño. Hmm. The daño is the wrong. And then, uh, you know, I, I'd ask about that. And when they were married, and they got pregnant, mom would say, oh, God saw that they were married and sent them a baby. When they weren't married, they were, the wrong, you know, they got wronged. In, in thinking about the title, or the subtitle of your memoir, which is Love and Chaos in the Bronx, what was the chaos that you were observing in the house? What were you seeing as a kid that you're watching and taking in? Well, my father's uh, violence against my mother when he would drink too much. You know, the first image where she was, uh, she had gone out with her brother and he came home and he was absolutely in a rage and I think a chair was thrown into the television set or something huge. Now you could imagine you're, I mean, I think I was in diapers. I was a toddler just standing there. I think my sister had gone into her room to hide. She's eight years older than I am and I was just frantic and um, my father leaned down to soothe me. <laughs> Because his issue was only with my mother. It wasn't, you know, we just happened to be standing around there in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, it kind of set the pace for, for everything else was kind of like, there's these kids here that are sort of in my, you know, in the way and, and attached to the, the mother and this man who really doesn't have that much to do with us kids except how he interacts with with my mother. I think in the book you describe the fact that your mom would sometimes hide the knives in the oven um, because just for fear that he might grab, I take it that he might grab them. I know, and then I say, why are you doing that? She'd say, oh, no worries. Just an insurance policy, but like, let's, oh, let's yeah. not make that. No worries, don't even worry about it. So, you know, I always, uh, you know, in my work with kids, they do pick things up the because they're kids. Don't think they don't, they pick up more. That was hilarious. That was like, I was going to name the book Knives in the Oven, but I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was the original title. It's one of the images that really stands out. Yeah, yeah. Could you just it, think about that. As oh, it was. It was just unbelievably crazy to say, why are you doing that? Do you think that? Oh, no. That would never happen. Well, why are you doing that? And that was the obvious. What, what was dangerous to you? What did, what did you know? This is danger. As a kid knows instinctively, they learn, don't go there. This is dangerous. I thought it would be that, that, uh, it would be an accident that, that um, uh, like that movie with Denzel Washington, I think it's called He Got Game, mm -hmm. where he's in jail because he pushes his wife and she hits her head on the table and dies. So he didn't mean to kill her, but accidentally, that's what I thought. The tornado effect. In a tornado. Wow. 
So that was, uh, you know, quite specific. So I, I think I grew up always looking for what accidents. You know how mothers put little guards on the edges of tables when yes. they have, you know, you're, you're anticipating what could go wrong here. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I grew up with that sense. I still have it. When the tornado did hit, and you mentioned and you write about uh, instances where your father would come in and he would throw things or hurl something or, or actually hit somebody, um, where, did, where did little Sonia go? I would stand right between them. <laughs> you would? Thinking that you could prevent yes. it from spiraling? Yes, yes. This one terrible time where I, I actually did get a weapon and, and, and uh, uh, you know, was able to smash it over my dad's head. In that moment, in that moment where uh, I distracted him long enough to allow my mother to escape. Mm, that was the goal, let her get away. Yeah. So, and it was like, it was very, a very popular 1950s uh, piece of decoration. It was a Black Panther. It's very like mid-century. You see it right. in all mid-century mid and it's a Black Panther and some of them have clocks in their stomachs. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, this was, and that's the, that's what I used for a weapon. And uh, he was so stunned. It was like, what? How did that happen? <laughs> Yeah. And, and that ga that gave her a, a chance to escape, and I thought, oh, now, now, I'm dead. He's gonna kill me, but he didn't. He just kind of went off, tried to find her, and um, and then things settled. And the po I remember the policemen came and they said, oh, we can't do anything because we didn't witness any violence. Meanwhile, the house looks like a tornado in it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can put two together. These big Irish easily. cops are saying, I'm going, what are you, blind? Yeah. <laughs> I think after that one time, I got a, uh, I fell into a, I had a crying jag. I started crying at some point and I simply could not stop. And both my parents came up to me and said, what's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it would just go on, and then, um, you know, ultimately, uh, uh, when I, uh, you know, when we all got old, and we talked about it, and they said, well, but what does this have to do with you? We were arguing amongst ourselves. When you grow up and become a woman, you understand that people fall in love and, and love is crazy. Mm -hmm. you, you, don't, you don't know that when you're a kid. You just see, you know, it hurts when I go like this. You, the answer is, so don't go like that. You know, yeah. that's what a kid solves a problem. So I, so I was thinking, well, this is a weird marriage that she obviously doesn't want because she said so. Mm -hmm. I didn't see the behavior that she remains in it as to. It wasn't until I was older and I spoke to cousins in Puerto Rico and said, oh, she always talked about how much she loved him. I'm going, what? You know, was... But here's where my mother was really funny. Yeah. She, my father's name was Bonifacio Manzano. And uh, he didn't like that name. So when they first met, he said that his name was Jose Luis Manzano, uh -huh. which is very romantic. Mm -hmm. Then later she found out his real name, and I said, Mom, Mom, the fact that he didn't tell you his real name, didn't that kind of indicate to you that there was a duplicitous kind of personality here? And she said, well, actually, if my name was Bonifacio, I would have lied about it, too. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, it was so confusing because I loved him. And so... Uh, he sang, he played guitar? He you sang, he played the guitar, he could wiggle his ears. And... He'd uh, scratch his back, right? Yeah, he would scratch his back. And then, uh, and then uh, when he... I remember one time I, 
I guess I had a cold or something and I was sick and he came home and he was loaded, but it was a, uh, uh, he was overcome with sadness. And he, he was, he sat by my bed and, and he just wept so profoundly. And I thought, I'm not that sick. <laughs> and then I, I could see that he carried some deep sorrow that had, you know, was there when he was five years old. Yeah. Thinking about that eye again, you know, as a kid, there are things that you can't see. And one of them is other people's memories, other people's histories. Right. And you can only sense them. And so I was going to ask you about your parents in this way, starting with your dad. How did you sense his story and what sense you got from him of his own origins in Depression-era Puerto Rico oh from gosh. things like the sobbing oh. by your bed or singing guitar and singing the old songs? What did you imagine about his past based on what you were seeing? Well, I, I, uh, uh, he didn't say a lot about it. I remember one time he was crying, so he just was begging forgiveness and weeping. And I wanted mom to be strong and not forgive him, but I was forgiving him because I felt so sorry for him. His mother was very stern. And since we're talking about New York, she lived in Harlem, in Spanish Harlem. Right. And at that time, I thought that was like Puerto Rican Central. And I thought, oh, why can't we live in Spanish Harlem? Why do you have to live in the Bronx? <laughs> it's not even famous. <laughs> anyway, she lived there and uh, she was cold. She was, she was a cold woman. And I think she was very harsh. Mm. And uh, uh, my mother said that when he was a boy, he pilfered a piece of fish a piece of fish from a codfish, bacalao, and that his mother was so angry she smacked him, picked up the fish and smacked him on the face with it. Wow. I think there was a lot of beating of the children. And, yeah. and I asked my father once, well, didn't your father, your father come to your aid when your mother was beating you? He said, no, he'd cheer her on. <laughs> oh, wow. How in school you were reading Charlotte's Web as a, as a class, and storytelling is an important part of that. And your teacher basically said everyone's got stories to tell. So you come home, and one day uh, your mother is getting her hair dyed, and you put her on the spot and ask her to tell you a story specifically about your grandmother, Encarnacion, a falcon, and whom you didn't know personally, but you knew you'd lit candles to her in church. Right. And so I was going to ask you, what did your mother allow you to see? about her own backstory in that moment. She's, she was a great storyteller, and she would tell me, um, when her mother died and left these five children as orphans, I mean, she painted a picture as if the woman died and went up to heaven, and then took the last child with her, and then the children, had, they were like indentured servants, Mm -hmm. and uh, how she was with one f family who were so poor, they lived in a house. She had to babysit their baby. She was like seven, and she had to take care of the baby in this house that was on stilts, a boio. And there were mongooses under the house and holes in, this, in the floor, and she was afraid the baby would fall through the hole mm -hmm. and get taken away by a mongoose. Oh, my goodness. And... Obviously, it's an overwhelming thing for a little girl. And she said, so what I did was, I did it as long as I could, and then I, they used to leave some rice for her to give to the children. She said, and for herself. She said, so I, I just gave the children the rice, and I didn't take any for myself. 
and I covered up the holes with furniture so they wouldn't fall through. And then I went away. You know, she walked to wherever she could find her. She father. left them in that, in yeah. sort of what she thought was a safe. She did, yeah. She situation. did the best she could. But so all of a sudden, my mother becomes in my mind this heroic person. And then she said, and then I had to one Christmas, I had to see my sister, but she was on the other side of a bullpen, and I crossed. The you know where the bulls well, were actual bulls like in a bull actual bulls like you can get yeah, like yeah. gored gored right and I crossed because I wanted to see my once again it was oh what a uh, resourceful person she is and then she lived with these other people she was convinced were going to spackle her into the wall you know that was the same fear of an eye following me she had this idea that exactly she was going to be spackled into yeah. a wall The other thing you, you did with your mom, which I thought was interesting, just like your audition for Sesame Street, you asked her one story uh, that was real, and then you asked her to make up a story for you the day that she was having her hair dyed. You asked her to improvise a story, just like you were going to be asked by John Stone. And she told you a story, a make-believe story, that involved her. I know, that that's so funny. I mean, it's, it's like a scene in a movie, isn't it? Yes. You know, you know and, she's, and so as soon as she says, it's winter. It's very cold in Crotona Park, and this woman lives there with her children. So I'm imagining an igloo. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's an igloo in Central Park, and there's this poor woman. Her husband beats her every day, and her children grow up and save her. Well, she gave me sort of my MOD. That's my identity. That was what I was supposed to do. And she kind of gave that. It was like a scene of instructions. It's a scene of instructions. It was a template. It was, you know, you know, take it from here. And there were always stories about people, women who endured hardship mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico and here, only to be saved when their children grew up and became policemen or mm. teachers or, you know. They came to America and they saved their mother. It was like our job. <laughs> yeah. And you eventually do do that. And, and it did. doesn't work out the way that you think it's going to work no. out, does it? No. In the sense that you, you actually tried to save her in the courts, in the legal system, yeah. the actual divorce proceeding. Yeah. And you realized that your intervention didn't actually make them happy. No, it wasn't. It wasn't in that, you know. And then... Um, they wanted to be together. Yes. Yeah, they did want to be together, and then I and I understood the meaning of the proverb. I think I guess it's a Chinese proverb. Once you save someone's life, you have to be responsible for their for it the whole. Because I felt that you know, I had I had uh, I thought I saved my mother, but I also cut an anchor she had, and now it was up to me to be the anchor. Now what do I do? That was my life. And, and her having been an orphan as a kid, she probably was even more sensitive to being a, feeling alone. To being alone. So what was the love that you were watching in that very same space? Uh, there was a lot of music. I, 
I used to think that all Puerto Ricans could sing and play the guitar. And then I went to Puerto Rico and I met some who didn't have that particular <laughs> talent. I used to love Aguinaldos, which is traditional Christmas music. We used to do barrandas, and it was a tradition in the islands. You know, we'd get all dressed up, and my mother would have heels, and they'd carry food, and, and you know, and then here at school, they're telling you that everybody should go to bed on Christmas Eve, and Santa Claus is going to come down a chimney, and he's going to give you presents, and I'm living the exact opposite of that, okay? Mm. But I used to figure it out in my mind. Well, what happens is that Santa Claus comes down the alleyway and he magically breaks open the window, leaves the presents, magically leaves, and uh, that's why we get presents. Oh, and the reason he leaves a present for me at my aunt's house is because he got rushed because all us Puerto Ricans are up all night and he had to get our presents <laughs> delivered before he does. So he just said, oh, I'll just leave this here for Sonia's aunt to give her. Kids could have a terrible childhood, mm -hmm. but they could find beauty in it. I thought it was beautiful when we went to buy fabric and there were all these bolts of fabric, you know, because my mother was going to make me a dress and she'd like, you know, negotiate with the guy how much you know, to pay for a yard. And then when he used to take it and unfurl it, and it would be like, <laughs> this ripple, this, it's this theatrical, it was like being at the Metropolitan uh, Opera, you know, mm -hmm. some scenery unfolding in front of me. Uh, that, that was beautiful. I loved uh, to see my mother cut a dress on the table. You know, I could hear the scissors going, across the table and she was like very efficient and and did she make you things oh yeah everything wow did you and she so got to wear things your mom made for you yeah everything everything she made me and I, and i you know i would say i saw this movie once called one touch of venus i love this movie and it was ava gardner playing venus was it you who kissed me you're talking you're alive well of course i'm alive what did you think i was well, I'm not very bright. I thought you were a statue. <laughs> Excuse it. Brandy, smelling salts, spirits of ammonia. Poor mortal, are you frightened? Frightened? <sighs> I don't know the meaning of the word. And so I wanted a dress with a drape in the back, you know. She's, my mother was trying to explain to me, but there's no way of, it, it, it can't stay on your body if it's floating around. I've got to, <laughs> and she did it. You've got the, the periscope eye, right, which is watching you, but there's the other side of it, which is you are invisible. You are not seen. Right. And so talk about that. When did you feel the most invisible as a girl? Oh, I guess I guess I, uh, I guess it was in the fourth grade mm -hmm. where I was just really felt uh, invisible and sad. And we ran away. For some reason, we were, we, it was a, my mother decided we should run away because she would have those moments and we ran away. We moved to Colgate Avenue. That was the first time I didn't live in a tenement building and I hated it. It was like a project. I couldn't bear it because it was so sterile to me. And you couldn't look out the window. You know, there was no activity. It was one of those, you don't know who your neighbor is. Right. So it was terrible and I had to go to school. I had to cross Bruckner Boulevard the overpass to go to the school and I was just uh, I was just reacting to their life I was one of the things swirling around in the tornado you're talking highways highways it was all wide highways. boulevards cars austere you didn't know anybody yeah and, and so if, if you have to channel sort of a feeling of alienation as a kid that's where you go that overpass yeah that overpass it was just I was, uh, thanks to uh, Robert Moses, where a, a school was right across the street, but you had to go over an overpass wow. because it was high, a highway. 
You can still see that in your mind? Yeah, yeah. For you, one of those pivotal moments of clarity, of coming into view as a young woman, as a girl in, the, in New York, was a movie, West Side Story. And you mentioned this teacher, Shirley, Pel uh, Shirley Pelman, Pelman, who was your teacher at one of the junior high schools that you went to, and she had this idea that she wanted to take you and a few other classmates to see West Side Story. She was like my fairy godmother. This teacher was always, uh, I was bullied when in her class. Denise, her name was Denise. And um, I don't know, I was just her target. But whenever, whenever Denise was going to beat me up, Shirley Pelman would magically appear, the teacher. <laughs> she was watching. Watching me every second. So she decides to take me to the, me and a couple of girlfriends. She just had to ask my mother and she took me to see West Side Story and I'm, I was watching this and all of a sudden. And just to set the scene, by the way, this wasn't just the local theater. You were going into New York. We went downtown, yeah. This was the Rivoli Theater in New right. York. It premiered October of 61, and it played there for 77 weeks. Isn't that yeah. amazing? Wow. I, yeah. I, I seized on it, uh, Sony, because the movie is so important to my dad. He grew up in Pennsylvania, and he came into New York from Pennsylvania and saw it 18 times. Oh. He loved it that much. West Side Story. So you don't know what you're in for. She just wants to take you to see this, this new yes. movie, West Side Story. There's Puerto Ricans in it. You probably love it. You know. So you feel go. Feel good about yourself. Yeah. And you mentioned the, that your mother made you a dress when you were a kid. And there in the movies, Anita they made were, Maria a yes. dress. I mean, they really nailed that that sensibility. They just they just nailed it. It's yeah. it's I could still get. And Rita Moreno was. Oh my goodness. She was so Puerto Rican. I can't believe it. Well, they began it. Well, they began it. And we're the ones who stop them once and for all tonight. Anita's gonna get her kicks tonight. We'll have our private little mix tonight. He'll walk in hot and tired, poor dear. Don't matter if he's tired as long as he's here. Tonight, tonight. At some point in the movie, I was so touched that I start crying and I simply cannot stop. I'm just hyperventilating. When the injustice, when the good guys, you know, when you're feeling for both yes. the jets and the sharks. Yes. And, um, and she took me down, she was all nervous because she was gonna do a, do a good thing for me. And she puts water on my face and uh, she buys me a poster, the poster of, uh, of them kissing or on the fire escape. So how was the movie? <laughs> it was like, I am so unhappy, and it's my unhappiness. And I'm not going to share it with you, because this is my beautiful, full of feeling. And I crushed that poster to me, and laid down in bed with it, and cried into the crumpled up poster. 
<laughs> I, I made it a part of me and I felt empowered. My misery made me strong because I, I was part of the, the human condition. You described earlier, in, in real life, you were having to cross this overpass, and now you're seeing it on the big screen. There's a rumble under the highway. Their landscape, their streetscape yeah. in New York, the west side, is a place that you can recognize. Yes. Well, that was obviously... That was, it was the first time I saw the banal things in my neighborhood, exalted. The fire escape, the school the graffiti, yeah. the, the schoolyard fencing was like, you know, a Matisse or something. And I realized that that's what art is. Yeah. I mean, you take a famous painting of a rotting flowers and for hundreds of years people are looking at the, the painting because he's taken a banal thing and somehow presented it in such a way you can't take your eyes off it. You said something in the book about the fact that seeing it taught you that something like that can be made. People can make that. People make that, yeah. And that maybe you can make something of your own self. Right. Of your own materials, of your own life. Right. <laughs> but also the fact that you are going to go on to play Maria. You know, yes. You are... In a place that looked... With the Hooper store, it looked like, uh, you know, the store in the West Side Story, which looked, which in my mind, I made it into Don Joe's store and the Sugar Bowl, where I used to go on Third Avenue and the, the tenement and the fire escape where important decisions are made. And all of a sudden, you know, I didn't think there was anything beautiful in my neighborhood, but there is, there was, there's beauty, you know, everywhere. I had never thought of West Side Story and Sesame Street as points meeting on a map until Sonia shared her epiphany with me. She lived in this New York, a scene, a setting, a neighborhood she'd grown up in but hadn't seen as a hometown that mattered on screen until then. Her journey to becoming Maria was underway. To find out what Sonia got from the world of the Jets and Sharks to the land of Bert and Ernie, from one Maria to another, hers. Listen to part two of our interview whenever you're ready. It's available right now. So really, this is just an intermission. Thank you for listening. And remember, everyone's from someplace. And everywhere is somewhere. <laughs>